Hello, I'm Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. I'm a writer, activist, author, and ordained Zen priest. And you're listening to Mindful by Design, a Himalaya learning audio course about mindfulness, meditation, evidence of how it all works, and some guidance to make it work for you. Over the next five episodes and accompanying meditations, I'll introduce you to some core principles of mindfulness practice through both science and lived experience. To access the exclusive guided meditations, go to Himalaya.com mindful and enter promo code mindful at checkout to get your first 14 days free. On today's episode, I'll introduce you to two voices to help lay the foundation for what it means to design a mindful life. First, we'll hear from Dr. Helen Wang, a clinical psychologist and neuroscientist who is an assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the University of California, San Francisco. She is also a faculty member at the UCSF Osher Center for Integrative Medicine and an affiliate faculty member of the Neuroscape Center. Through Dr. Wang's breakthrough work, we'll find out how unique each of our minds are and how we can get to know our own mind so our practice works for us. Then, we'll hear from Professor Clifford Sarin, another brilliant neuroscientist for the Center for Mind and Brain at UC Davis, who has conducted some of the most extensive research on intensive meditation practice. Dr. Sarin will introduce us to how meditation affects our own emotional states and how how we do meditation matters by grounding us in his research. Perhaps the most important thing to remember as we get to hear from these folks that will give us a window into science is that the real researcher will be you. So listen, learn, and get ready to apply it as you design your own mindful life. Let's get started. Welcome, Helen. It's good to have you. Thank you. And so could you tell us first a little bit about just who you are and what you're up to? So I'm Dr. Helen Wang. I'm trained as a clinical psychologist and a neuroscientist where my specialty is studying the neuroscience of meditation. I've also learned meditation myself. It's about 15 years now. And from what I learned from experience and also through what I've learned from teachers, I integrated meditation practice into my psychotherapy training. Would you say a little bit of something about how it ended up in your toolbox? If we go way back, I was a stressed out teenager. So I'm an Asian American daughter of Taiwanese immigrants, and we moved to a mostly white town. And I was grew up with the same kids from grade one to 12. And so I just felt a lot of stress, like navigating the culture of my parents and the culture where we were living and feeling not connected very much. And Mm. so I turned to books for help. And so psychology, Buddhism, books by the Dalai Lama, and that's where I learned about compassion and that you can ground your values and a sense of compassion. And so even though I felt like not always treated well by these children, that I didn't have to respond the same way. And I could learn how to be a different way that actually connected people. I imagine that given your ethnic background, that there's not a lot of your type of person. There's not a lot of your um, race and and even gender uh, in, in this field in general. How do you make a connection between the work that you're doing now and 
that early impulse to find a way to navigate the way that people were treating you and, and find a new path to responding to them. So my personal interest in, in compassion and meditation was very, very personal. I wanted a path to healing. Uh, I wanted to feel better in my own skin, in my own mind. I did struggle with mental health issues growing up, and that has shaped the way I am and that I'm, I'm a very sensitive person, highly empathic. And for me, I always knew that race and culture were d deeply entwined in my version of, of not feeling whole. In my particular niche in neuroscience, it's still very male dominated, still very white dominated. And so in my particular niche of neuroscience of meditation with functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is a big magnet that measures your brain activity, I am one of the only people of color and one of the only women of color. And I know this will change over time. This is just where we are in the timeline of things. And so what I found is in my training, the issues around race and gender and cross-cultural issues became magnified because now I'm working in this very high intensity situation. And what was striking to me is once I got my PhD and my degree, I finally felt like for me, I proved myself right mm. to, the, to the powers that be that I have learned the skills. And it was striking to me that I had kept inside almost the whole time. The whole reason why I had gone into the field was to find some personal healing with the racial and cultural uh, conflicts and trauma. And so I started speaking out on that because I, I can't keep quiet you could have kept quiet, and, and that's a, that was a particular choice, and a choice that comes with some risk, you know, given the nature of how we think of these fields that you know tend to be dominated by particular peoples, have a long history of privileging some peoples, as you've said. Could you say more about the, the couldn't, right? Like, what, what is it that made it really, really important for you to, to name this and to voice this? I put my deep personal experiences into my work, into my study designs, because in deep pain, held with compassion and mindfulness, things start to transform, right? So my first set of projects is about that, what testing whether people have the capacity to become more compassionate if we practice compassion. And to me, this kind of is simple because if we practice math, some you know, most of us get better at math. If we exercise, we get, you know, more physically fit. And so to me, it was a little bit obvious, but I needed to show it scientifically. If we practice compassion, does it actually change how our minds respond to other people's suffering and also how we treat people? Well, there, there's sort of uh, a lot of buzz around the idea of compassion. What does that mean to you scientifically? Yeah, so scientifically, it's been defined as the emotional response you have when you encounter someone suffering that motivates a desire to help. There's also a distinction between compassion and empathy, which Ogle Klemecki's work really helped concretize, and that empathy can be defined as resonating with the suffering of others. And so you, if you see someone suffering, you might feel a similar sort of suffering. And then mm -hmm. compassion is uh, feeling a sense of care towards that suffering. So that mm -hmm. activates the positive reward systems or the, the neural systems in our brain associated more with positive things, things we enjoy doing, um, because there's, there's a connection there when you care about somebody. 
And so my, my first set of studies did show that people became uh, more generous with their personal funds to help out a stranger and that these changes in the brain were related to changes in how generous they were. So that if people do start to shift their neural activity through meditation practice, it can help result in actual um, pro-social behavior out in the real world, which is what, what I really care about. How do we actually become more kind and helpful people? And if people do have some kind of a meditation practice or compassion practice, how, how long does it last? I mean, does it, is it like I can do it for, <laughs> you know, maybe a week and, and then it will stick around for a while, or is this like a lifetime kind of job? Oh, I think it's a really good question that uh, we need a lot more data on. I get this question a lot. The, the honest answer is I don't know at this point. Um, a lot of the literature is based on uh, studies where people practice for eight weeks, uh, about 45 minutes a day um, with a class once a week. This is the mindfulness-based stress reduction course developed by John Kabat-Zinn. So every day for two months seems to help people with, with stress and depression and anxiety. There's some studies that will follow up with them, but I think we need more to see how long this can last. I know for myself, those two months just showed me how much I needed to work on. <laughs> and luckily, but it, is, it, it is daily. They encourage you to practice 45 minutes a day daily. Um, they're starting to shift those studies because they recognize not everyone has that time to like 20 minutes a day. I do think like some kind of continuing it, right? If, if you use the, um, the analogy of exercise, what happens if you exercise for a week and then stop and never do it again, right? Your body isn't going to be as healthy. So I really think that analogy applies. Um, there is work from Barb Fredrickson's group that showed um, people who first learned loving kindness, over the eight weeks they did start reporting more positive emotions day to day. But it was especially those people in the first week or two that showed a, a big, uh, a noticeable increase in their positive emotions, like right away, those people were still practicing a year later. How can we craft a practice that, as you said, you know, allows us to be more kind and, um, and more caring? So what are, what are the markers we're looking for in whatever it is that we do that right. will tell us um, that it's helping? Great questions. Um, so I'd say first start with something you would enjoy meditating with, something that you kind of do every day anyway. Try to couple the meditation habit with the habit you already have. The mental state of mindfulness can involve things like having sustained attention, right? That's kind and non-judgmental. Sustained attention, non-judgmental, kind and compassionate and um, curiosity. And what starts to happen is that your normal, what we call narrative mode or default mode are kind of everyday mental chatter and the stories we tell ourselves. It starts to settle down if you bring these uh, mindful qualities to what you're doing. So I would try to think about in your own life, where do I want compassion to have a, a noticeable impact in my life? Um, and so when I was a student, it was my interactions with other students, my friends, and also my clients, right? And so I actually worked with some very challenging clients that have relationship problems. So of course, it would come up in the room that they would say something to me or use a tone of voice 
that I didn't like. And I, I actually remember a time when a client responded so aversively from my view to, to me, and I could feel my own defenses kicking in. And I actually called on compassion. I'm like, okay, I really need you right now. And I could actually flip my mental state very quickly into more of a state of compassion, trying to understand where is this person coming from? Why are they acting this way? And how do I help them practice the skills to also treat themselves and myself with more compassion as well. But I needed that base of practice where I, where I understood compassion well enough in my own body and mind that when I really needed it, I could call on it. I would not be able to do that without all the, all the practices I had been doing. I think there are so many ways that we can all be able to invest in ourselves in, in a way that allows us to be more more kind and more caring and I think you know first and foremost to ourselves definitely so as I became more vocal about very clear about you know racial discrimination and things I encounter as a scientist I I just put all of that frustration and pain back into my work where I realized I could change the way I do my own research to reflect my values, even if, if I don't always see it around me. So I, again, made the conscious choice, how do I make my own research more diverse and inclusive? How do I do it in a way that's less top-down and less hierarchical and uh, brings people in partnership? And so I used um, community-based participatory research methods uh, with the East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland, that was founded to support um, people of color, queer people, people with disabilities, to give them safe spaces to practice. And I met with them and showed them my research procedures as was like the standard way I was taught. And then they schooled me on all the things I needed <laughs> to make it more culturally sensitive, to use language that was uh, person-centered and affirming, to be really clear about what happens in the science experiment so people can make good decisions about whether they participate or not. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also changed my neuroscience methods where we use individualized methods where each person's brain is its own unique environment instead of averaging it all together to find these average regions that light up, which most of the research does. And I found this individualized approach, like I found with my clinical work, the more tailored you can make it to the person, the actual, the better m measurement and the better signal you're getting. Once you have a better signal, you can make better choices about what to do. That's that's really, really lovely. It's been fantastic having you. I hope that we can uh, do this again and you know open up more questions. So yeah, thank, thank you. you. Listening to Dr. Wang, we can clearly see that there is no one brain. If there's no one brain, then there's no one meditation practice. There's just yours. Now we'll hear from Dr. Sarin, who will help us understand how meditation affects us, and also how the conditions that we create for our meditation matters too. So I just want to start right at the top. If you would, please, Professor Sarin, give the listener some background on the work that you do. So I'm uh, Cliff Sarin. I'm a research scientist at the Center for Mind and Brain at the UC uh, Davis, University of California, Davis, and also um, part of the faculty of the Mind Institute at the UC Davis Medical Center. And my research over the last uh, 
whole almost 15 years, has focused on two domains, and one of those domains we'll be focusing on today. The first is the investigation of the consequences of intensive meditative practice, typically in the Buddhist tradition, by studying retreat experience from a multidisciplinary perspective. This is asking questions about how intensive meditation affects one's uh, emotion uh, regulation, uh, one's uh, attentional capacities in a variety of ways, one's worldview in part, uh, in more of a qualitative sense, as well as things related to uh, stress and uh, cellular aging. And we've done this in uh, two main venues. One um, with Alan Wallace as a teacher of a series of three-month retreats at the Shambhala Mountain Center in 2007, and a number of uh, studies at Spirit Rock uh, Meditation Center of one-month retreats. And I'm kind of a little bit of the orchestra conductor of a very large collaborative network of uh, co-investigators, uh, scientists, graduate students, uh, postdocs, and uh, collaborators uh, that uh, is actually um, an international group of uh, investigators interested in really trying to honor the complexity of what it is to think about a person engaging in a contemplative practice from a very broad point of view. In embarking on the project, what did you, what did you see? What surprised you? What did you expect and, and what turned out to be not? Well, it's a it, it's a was a several year envisioning process uh, collaboratively with the main teacher who was Alan Wallace about what are the domains that are going to be impacted of a person who is engaging in this um, Buddhist practice, and one of the things that was highlighted is this is a meditative quiescence shamatha, literally means calm abiding and is both an aspect, a quality of mind, as well as a series of practices. And those practices uh, really are focused on bringing the mind back to a given object and noticing the quality of attention when it is, wherever it is. And so there's a kind of metacognitive monitoring of the quality of attention with respect specifically on the dimension of sort of being overexcited or being very dull. And there's also, am I on the object or not? But the practices that we studied primarily were mindfulness of breathing, but there were other practices that Alan taught, which included uh, settling the mind in its natural state, which is sort of taking a seat and seeing what comes up across all domains. And then there was, um, trying to pay attention to awareness itself as a focus called shamatha without a sign. And most people did mindfulness of breathing most of the time. And this was sort of seasoned, as uh, Alan uh, liked to say, with um, compassion, loving kindness, empathetic joy, and uh, equanimity, visualizations and practices of four measurables. So when we think about what we might expect, the most obvious thing is that if you're doing focused attention meditation with attention to the quality of the stability of your attention, you should get better at things that require focused attention. 
the three, the, the sort of tripod of those qualities is a, a sense of perceptual vividness, a sense of relaxation, and a sense of attentional stability. And how do you test that? That was my question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we designed a series of attention experiments that harken all the way back to the sorts of work that was done to assess radar operators in World War II. There are a series of continuous performance tasks because humans are generally not very good at boring things. We want novelty. And what we have found is that to the extent people got better from the beginning of the retreat to the middle of the retreat, this actually predicted their psychological functionality and well-being at the end of three months. There is a quantitative relationship between improvements in response inhibition and a whole host of questionnaire self-report measures having to do with resilience and mindfulness and decreased anxiety, decreased depression, increased openness to new experience, better emotion regulation, all of these things combined together. Uh, over the course of time since the pandemic, there's been this trajectory of like, oh, we have this pandemic, and then like it's it's a real thing, and you know we are scrambling to renegotiate our sense of reality and going through what I recognize from my own practice of that place where you um, you you begin to kind of let go of the idea that it's going to go back to whatever it was before. <laughs> I have posited that there's something about the pandemic that has been, and in fact, I was speaking to John Kabat-Zinn uh, early, early on, probably one of the first podcast conversations that I had. And I said, you know, this is like a forced retreat, like a timeout. In that, one of the things I think about when we go on retreat that I think contributes to something of what we're happening, I mean, go with me for a second here, is that we know that the other people there are on retreat. There is this shared experience about being on retreat that I recognized in a felt sense way of that really uh, right there in April sometime where it was like, oh, we're we're in a shared thing together. And there's the pain of it and the suffering of it and the horror and the tragedy of it. And there's also the quiet of it that I posit has something to do with why we had such a, uh, in the U.S. in particular, why there was such a different response to the um, killing of George Floyd, that we in some way were in for all the, all the bad. We were also in some kind of a collective retreat environment, if you will, not, not as, you know, way more porous in some ways, obviously, but still some, some of the, the familiar, you know, markers of like what it means to be in retreat, you know, Apparently, without a teacher, though, I just have to say there was no teacher. Uh, any any thoughts about that? Oh yeah, a lot of thoughts about that. So I I think you're absolutely right. I think that there was some uh, collective rawness by all of the ways that were truncated in society to entertain us to allow us to um, 
attend to discomfiture with entertainment or escape or something that was distracting. And I think for meditative types, folks who pay for the privilege of not going anywhere, but developing a quiet and interiority, there was almost a, a hidden refuge. There was a whole lot of activity that dropped out. And I think that at the mass scale, this absolutely created a ground. But there was also this very important information of the disparity that the pandemic was unveiling. And then we had this remarkably horrible video of a man staring in the camera while he killed someone. Do you think we felt more? The numbness, perhaps, was not what came up. There was much more heart-ripping. I don't have the right word, but there has been a huge social shift, I think, across the society. It keeps pointing out how much work there is to be done. I appreciate that. I, it's something I've really been uh, holding the sense of uh, that one of the outcomes of retreat is, is this, um, you know, sensitivity. And what is the word that telomerase? Ah, uh, yes. Well, this is tel the telomerase and telomerase. Yes. Yeah. yes. So this, this was a piece of our current study that I didn't mention. And I can also talk about the work that led up to um, why we're looking at telomere length uh, in this new uh, COVID stress meditation experience study, because we're actually in that study I, I just mentioned. We are mailing little kits to people to prick their fingers and give us a very small blood sample so that we can measure now and a year from now the length of their telomeres in blood immune cells. Now, what's a telomere? Telomeres are little ends of your chromosomes. They're sequences of DNA that have a repeating sequence that are the same for yeast and people and all manner of animals. And this is part of the basic molecular biology of what stabilizes are chromosomes and enables DNA to be replicated when cells divide. And the telomere doesn't get perfectly copied. It's like a zipper on your jacket is not teeth all the way down. It has this little slug at the end. So when you replicate your DNA in your cells, exactly where the replicating macromolecular structure binds doesn't get copied. So the ends of your chromosomes keep getting shorter. If they get too short, then the cell can't get copied and the cell dies. So that does not get um, replicated. If the telomeres never get short and they just keep getting long and longer, it immortalizes the cell and that's a process in cancer. Mm -hmm. But there's like this Goldilocks region mm -hmm. where so we don't necessarily want like forever, forever telomeres. You you don't want like you know fingernails that grow three inches long. 
you don't want <laughs> you you don't want overly long telomeres, but you don't want premature shortening, and your lifespan is related to telomere length. However, there is this enzyme called telomerase, which can repair the shortening of telomeres, and the regulation of telomerase is um, very complex, and stress can disrupt that regulation. And the first experiment that we did in the Shamada project is we actually measured telomerase in a particular type of um, peripheral blood uh, immune cell called a monocyte. And we found that at the end of three months, the people in the retreat compared to a match control group had 30% more telomerase circulating in the immune cells that we collected from their blood. This was just not a group finding. When you look at aspects of psychological change in individuals, we found a high correlation between shifts from the beginning to the end of this three-month retreat in a sense of purpose in life. For those individuals whose sense of purpose in life increased, they had higher levels of telomerase. But there were other people for their sense of purpose didn't change or went down. And those people had lower levels of telomerase at the end of three months. So in that study, the more you had increased sense of purpose, and the more you had a decrease in neuroticism, the greater and the more you had a sense of autonomy, of um, locus of control. Those were all associated with increased telomerase at the end of the retreat. So there's there are all these benefits of, of meditation that we hear about and people seem very excited about. What are three things that, you know, set us in the right direction towards for our particular experience, our particular unique experience inside of the fact that everyone's experience is unique, their pains are unique and suffering. Uh, what what three things are m most likely shared amongst us that that could help us uh, chart chart at least a steady course in greater wellness, greater relationship with ourselves and interiority? I think that's a beautiful and powerful question. The first thing that comes up for me is uh, a sense that uh, of a teacher who's a dear friend, Sylvia Borstein, has, has said about uh, what is actually at play here, and that is becoming one's own loving parent. And so the first thing that comes up for me is sort of honoring one's own capacity for, for self-compassion, and that one deserves ultimate care by your own hand. The second thing that comes up for me is, is a kind of um, brightened curiosity about the nature of what is uncovered. Valence independent. And I think the third thing is the sense of continuity, that 
you don't just start to get wise when you meditate and then get not wise when you stop. This uh, oscillation between what is informal and formal practice, what is contemplative, what is not contemplative, I, I, I think it's very easy to get um, apt out, instead of mm -hmm. opt out, I just can't say <laughs> apt out, by yeah. uh, how many minutes have I done? You know, it's like how many steps have I done? How many right. mindful breaths? And, and even our iPhones have a, a mindful minute tracker mm -hmm, in it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mine says no data. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I, uh, I think it's really important to not get caught in uh, concretizing what fundamentally is, is a, a voyage of love and inquiry of mm. your embeddedness in this existence. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. Having heard from Dr. Wang and Dr. Sarin, it's pretty clear from the research that mindfulness isn't one-size-fits-all. Instead, it's more about laying down a foundation, having a steady approach, and then seeing what works for you. It's also clear that the potential impact on your life could be powerful and very practical, too. And since it's not one-size-fits-all, it all depends on practice. It's especially about getting started. What did you hear that made you a little more curious about how mindfulness could work for you? What's one thing going on in your life right now that might benefit from a meditation practice? The instructions that come with these episodes are super bite-sized, so you can get over the major hump most people have in starting or building a practice. Time. Ask yourself right now, what are the other things that might make you avoid getting started, and what can you do about those right now? Join us next time for another Awakening Conversation with Mindful by Design. One more thing, if you're one of those people that already has a mindfulness practice and you'd like to take it a lot deeper, or you'd like to sharpen up your skills so that you can share it with others, you can join me in the Mindful Certification and Training at mndflcertification.com. To get the most out of this course, check out the guided meditations that accompany each episode available only on the Himalaya Learning Platform. Himalaya Learning is an audio learning platform that provides bite-sized courses from world-class thinkers and industry experts to fuel your personal and professional growth. To access exclusive content for this course and others like it, go to Himalaya.com mindful and enter promo code mindful at checkout for your first 14 days free. We hope you enjoy.